So I'm wearing blue jeans today, and it's not Blue Jeans Sunday. I did this so that I would remember to tell all of you that Blue Jeans Sunday is October 14th. Um, I think I forgot to do that last week. So I want you to remember that, that on October 14th, you can wear your blue jeans, but more importantly, bring blue jeans for the hope chest. Uh, this is not a fashion statement. Uh, last time I made a fashion statement, they arrested me for disturbing the peace, and uh, I don't, so I don't make fashion statements anymore. I remember that when we had the first Blue Jeans Sunday, it was probably uh, 10 years ago. Uh, this wasn't a common uh, fashion option. Now it's become much more ordinary. But the point of the Blue Jeans Sunday is to provide clothing that the Hope Chest Ministry can use to help others who have a need. Now, about a dozen years ago, we started the uh, Hope Chest down on the corner of 4th and 8th Street uh, downtown. And uh, if you haven't seen it yet, the, the folks there would love to show it to you. You can go and look at it. There's a lot of good ministry that goes there. And they specialize in sharing clothing and household items with people. Now, one of the most sought-after items are blue jeans. For some reason, they are always stocked with all the women's blue jeans they could ever want. I think that, you know, those show up every once in a while. Styles change. Uh, people uh, get rid of the, the, the old ones. But men wear blue jeans until they crumble into dust. So the, the, the rarest jean to be found is the, uh, the men's blue jean, specifically the smaller ones. I don't know why that is either. But I will tell you that this set of blue jeans does no one at Hope Chest any good because I am too large. We want waist size 36 and below, all right? So if you can find those, if you've got a, a, a skinny male relative who needs to uh, go buy him new blue jeans, take the old ones, or just buy the new ones for the Hope Chest. Now anybody at the Hope Chest will be glad to tell you how you can share. If you're confused by all this, then just give cash and it will get converted into blue jeans. Hey, you know, it's kind of like Bitcoin. I mean, you can, you can turn your cash into something really, really rare and valuable down at 4th and 8th Street. So that's my word to you about Blue Jeans Sunday on what day? Say it again. October 14th. Very good. Now you know. Now you know. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would bless us in efforts like this where we're trying to uh, just share what we have. To share what maybe even comes easy to us and and Father, in doing so, we want to make, um, we want to build connections. Because it's not just about the clothing or the household items. It's about sharing gifts in the name of our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. And I pray that in doing so, we'll have the opportunity to share what matters most, and that's the good news. Good news that, uh, that you have not only provided a way of salvation, so many people accept that. But Father, I pray that they will hear the good news that you want to save them and you want them to be saved and that you do love them and that all of us do truly matter to you. In 
Father, I pray that we would keep this in mind. Now be with us in our study of God's words and help us to take the words of Jesus seriously and put them into practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you for the response last week, the response to the crucial series devoting our lives to what matters most. It was a good response. I can tell that you're very interested in this. So I hope to continue this interest for the next few weeks. Uh, Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 22. And I appreciated what uh, Barry Neal said to us when we gathered around the Lord's Supper table. He brought up some of the other things that were said on that night when the Passover becomes the Lord's Supper, when Jesus changes the meaning of it, and it becomes the first communion. Sometimes it's called the Last Supper, but it, it, was, it might have been for, for Jesus then at that moment, but it becomes the Lord's Supper, which we are continuing to observe until he comes. And so we, we, we focus on words like, um, this is my body, and this is my blood, and those are crucial, those are very important. And today you might be saying, wait a second, why didn't you include those? We're going to save those for another lesson. But there are other things that are said that night. And if Jesus took the time to say those things around this most important supper, then I think they're important things for us too, don't you? I think they're things that definitely matter. And we might want to take a look at them and devote ourselves to them. I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter uh, 22, and uh, if you want to read along with me, that will be fine, or you can just listen and hear the account as Luke recorded it. Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Oh, and they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he entered. And say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where's the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. And they left, and they found things, just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I won't eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, take this. Divided among you, for I tell you, I'll not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves, which of them it might be that would do this. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Well, is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. You'll deny three times that you know me. And then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. If you have a bag, and if you don't, uh, and also if you have a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, as he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And the disciples said, see, Lord, here's two swords. That's enough. Here they come. Within that text, there are five things that Jesus says at the supper table that we don't always recognize Barry and I appreciate it recognize some of that but I think that when we that, that when we bring that up at this moment it's it's not trivia it's not extra material it is all part of what Jesus wants us to know as we remember him otherwise the most important event on the Lord's day becomes a, a sort of a, a, a procedural act like the mass and it becomes something that, well, you know, even if you don't understand it, if you do it the right way, then the communion magic works. This meal always unites us to Christ and to one another and to God. And it, it brings us back in remembering him to what truly matters most. And all of that discussion that Jesus had with his disciples is discussion that we need to hear because it's keeping us focused on what's crucial. The first thing that Jesus says, first thing that we could say based on what Jesus says is, don't you betray him. Now, I always thought that when um, Jesus uh, 
said, the hand of the one who's going to betray me is on the table with me. That was some kind of, you know, sneaky way that, you know, he said that just as Judas was grabbing for the bread. And it's like, oh, they're both of them. But if that was that obvious, then why do they have a dispute over who, who would betray him? Why do they have to guess? I mean, shouldn't it have been obvious? There, Jesus and Judas both have their hand on the table, reaching in for the bread or for something else on the table. And it's like, the one who's got his hand on the table with me is the one who's going to betray me. I mean, if the disciples are that thick, then, then, then there's, there's problems. You know, it's like, oh, I wonder who it could. Oh, that's not what's happening here. Well, I want to point that out. They all had their hand on the table with Jesus. He's saying everyone is right here. He's saying the one that will betray me is one who I have invited to share a meal with me. That's not where you would imagine that the betrayal would come from. But betrayal always comes from within. That's why it's betrayal. Otherwise, it would just be an attack. Now, as they become suspicious of one another, and, and Luke and the other gospel writers record their responses, it's not I. Oh, not me. It won't be me. They're sure it's not them, but it's going to be someone else. And I think the message that Jesus is saying to his disciples, which he would then extend to us, is you can spend a lot of time worrying about who out here is going to betray Jesus or the church. And you will be wasting your time. Just make sure it's not you. That's what you can do. You know, another way to think of this is, is that Jesus is saying, keep your hands to yourself. Okay. In other words, you focus on your actions, behavior. Make sure that you are not the betrayer. And sometimes we, 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 we've bought into the ideas of history that we think that it's our job to defend the faith. Well, we've got to defend the faith, or as Jude says in, in his letter, contend for the faith. We've got to, this is a fighting faith. We've got to find those people who are going to betray it and, and um, give them a right cross, and, and then that way I'll be carrying the cross of Jesus. Yes. Do you know that the term defender of faith is not in the Bible? The defender of the faith is a term that the Pope in the 16th century gave to monarchs who were defending their political version of religion. Defender of faith was a way of saying that a king and his government was, was authorized by the Holy Church. And it brought the church into politics. Folks, when Jesus sees them pick up those two swords and he says, that'll be enough. He's telling us that we're not in a fight that's going to be solved by the kings of this world and the weapons of this world. Now Jesus is there and he knows he's going to be betrayed, but he, he can accept that and not have to fight back or hit back. I mean, if, if he knows it's Judas and he's concerned about it, why doesn't he just say, it's Judas, it's Judas, everyone, Judas is going to betray me. Let's run him out of town on a rail, let's, let's take him out. 
because Jesus is content to follow the plan that is before him, the path that is before him. He knows that whatever it is, God is going to redeem it and make it into something that will work towards salvation. The way he does that is he trusts. Now, if Jesus could trust in God's will, will you and I trust in his will? I, I don't know. You know, we're, we're in mission season right now, and I don't know if we realize just how many of our brothers and sisters around the world have to make a decision every day between faithfulness and safety, faithfulness and life, faithfulness and having access to the resources of this world that you and I take for granted. Now, we feel like we're becoming more and more on the outside and persecuted in this nation. And I think the message of Jesus would be, if persecution comes, then let it come. It is not our job to make sure that that does not happen. It is our job to faithfully follow him and trust him wherever the path may lead. Don't betray him. The second thing that Jesus says is you need to redefine your notion of greatness. They get into that argument over who's most important. And it, you can see, it makes sense that Peter and James and John are involved in it. You can almost hear them, you know, as they're sitting there talking. Well, you know, I think that I've got some important things to offer, says Matthew, the tax collector. I mean, I did have a uh, pretty good fortune, and I think that I can supply the funds and the resources that are needed. Yeah. And Peter and John are sitting there saying, yeah, well, you know, did those resources get you a ticket up to the hill of the mountain of transfiguration? I'm just saying, raise your hand if you saw Moses and Elijah at this table. And, and, and so they, they went on trying to prove who mattered most. And Jesus undercuts all of that and gives us a kingdom definition of greatness. Now, now, here's the thing I want you to understand. Even in the kingdom of God, even in the church family, we can still hold up worldly ideals of greatness and we can, we can make that our aim and we can embrace those. I don't think we do it because we're, we're, we're evil, that we have darkness in our heart. I think we do it because we're conditioned by ideas of greatness that come from the culture that you and I swim in, okay? That you want to be successful, you want to be independent, you want to be uh, uh, youthful. I mean, even if you can't be young, if you can be youthful. So, you know, if you're 50-something and you're preaching, wear some blue jeans, and that'll make you real youthful. And, uh, you know, you want to you, you be in good shape. Uh, you want to you have a good job. You want everybody to respect you. Uh, you, want, you, you, want, uh, you want your kids to do well. You want, uh, you know, you want them to, to get a lot of attention and, oh, look who won the awards. And, and you know, and we go through this life where all of these things, and, and then we get a little more subtle. It's like, well, you know, I, I, I want to do good stuff, but I, I, don't, I don't need all the attention. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said that those who lord it over the Gentiles call themselves, what? Benefactors. They're philanthropists. I mean, these are the people that we exalt. The people who've done so much for so many and... Yet they're so very humble about it, but at the same time, 
uh, on free public television, we always thank all those people who make it possible for us to, uh, you know, watch um, um, British shows on PBS. And so the, uh, you know, on and on it goes. And, and, and that's all kind of good stuff. But we can get caught up equating worldly ideas of success with kingdom greatness. And worldly ideas of success will ultimately fail you. I'm not saying that they're all bad. I'm just saying that they will let you down. If you put your faith in money, there will come a time where you will not have enough. If you put your, if you put your trust in safety and security, there will come a time when you are not going to feel very safe or secure. If you put your faith in anything other than God, it's going to fail at some point. Even if it fails at the turn of the ages and we find ourselves in the kingdom of God and all those things that we trusted in that we thought we could bring with us, we find out it's no longer valid. It's like Confederate money. It doesn't work anymore. God gives kingdom greatness as a gift. Did you notice what he was saying to them when, when he says, now, you know, he's talking about greatness. He says, you're not to be like the ones who strive to be benefactors and exert their rule over others. That, that's not like you. And by the way, one of the things that we often do in the church is we try to create our hierarchies of church government so that you have uh, ministers and deacons and elders and you got to know which of those outrank the others and everything. Church government, those are all servants. Those are all servants, and they've been given authority as a gift. All of us who lead. It doesn't make us better than anyone else. It doesn't make us less than anyone else. In the church, government looks like this. Jesus is king. Everybody else is serving one another. There you go. It's a monarchy, an absolute monarchy. And everybody else serves one another in a lot of different ways whether they carry a title or not. And Jesus says, in the kingdom, verse 26, you're not to be like that. The greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules just like the one who serves. Authority in the church is never an oppressive or intimidating issue of flashing a badge or showing class status or educational degrees, or anything else. It's about being at the table, but living as one, living and acting as one who serves. The third thing that Jesus says is he says that when there's suffering, you and I should stay close to him. That's both an instruction and a comfort. Notice that he, he said uh, to his disciples in verse 28, he said, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And that's where they get their gift. He says, And I'll confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me. What do we do to earn that kingdom? Nothing. It's a gift. You know, if you're ever wondering, you know, well, what, what is it that I really do in the kingdom? What, I mean, I don't know how I serve anybody. Show up, talk to the king, and he'll tell you what to do. He'll make it clear to you. You don't have to worry about finding your gift or di discovering your gift or 
And, and certainly what you don't have to do is find some way to do something so that everybody in the church affirms you. <clears throat> I mean, I could spend all day running around. Did I do good? Was I a good preacher? Did I do all right today? Was the sermon the right? What, you pick one. Was it the uh, short enough, just right, or, or too long? You know? And you know what? If I ask those kind of questions, I'm going to get every answer under the sun. All right. I don't have to have any other affirmation other than the affirmation of God, and that's the same for you. And even when we're going through hard times, that does not mean that God has abandoned us. I mean, we can get addicted to affirmation, but we can also get the wrong idea about suffering and assume that that automatically means God is disapproving. Not always the case. Sometimes we experience suffering because of the consequences of our poor choices. But sometimes we need to stay close to Jesus in that suffering because maybe it's going to be redemptive. Maybe it's the result of us having to make decisions. Jesus' suffering is a crucial part of the gospel message. Take a look when you go home today. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2, okay? Write that down. And you look at how Paul describes the gospel in a nutshell. He starts by saying that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he lets go of it and he empties himself. Jesus knows that from the beginning of this mission, there will be suffering. And that suffering becomes an important part of that message. Later on, we're going to get to chapter 24 of Luke. And Jesus is going to be walking along the way with the two travelers on the way to Emmaus. And they're going to think <clears throat> that the fact that Jesus died on the cross means that God failed, Jesus failed, everyone failed. And Jesus, who is not recognized by them, takes the time to show them, oh no, that was all part of the plan. The sacrifice that Jesus is willing to trust in God and give of himself is what enables God to work through it for salvation. Now you and I are called to sacrifice as well, to take up our cross. It may be dramatic or it may not. Sacrifice is not always dramatic. It's not always public. Your sacrifice may be something that no one else ever knows about. I can tell you that it always boils down to this. It's us saying that we are devoted to doing things his way rather than our own way. Even if we think that our way is good. You know, I learned in, in ministry years ago that there's a lot of things that someone in, in my position, that church leaders even, can do that will make things grow, that sound good, that will make things fantastic. And we can keep building and growing and we can do it and it sounds good. And if we use all those techniques, we'll get people in here over and over and over again. But is that his way? Are we judged by the faithfulness of how many people we pack in these pews? Are we judged by the faithfulness of, of uh, how much we have in our account and how much we can build and how, how much more we can do? If that's the case, then, then why are our, our brothers and sisters who are meeting in secret in the Middle East and in Asia, how do you judge them? Well, if they had more faith, they could increase their membership by a few hundred. See, that's good thinking that gets twisted by Satan. 
and it takes us out of our out of doing things his way and tells us that good intentions are his way now i'm not saying that following his way automatically means that you and i are not going to grow there's no there's no virtue in saying that you know why there's uh five of us here and we don't even know if we're all going to go to heaven but we are the faithful (laughs) that that's that's a bit extreme in the other direction but what we need to pay attention to is is that decisions come up every day and it may be hard and you may want to try to 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 integrate your way with his way but you may have to sacrifice what you think is good you may have to sacrifice what you want and simply be faithful to him stay close to him in the suffering and you're going to be following his way the fourth thing that jesus says is that god can redeem betrayal and failure Satan wants to sideline us. And as Barry said in the communion, he intercedes for us. Satan wants to sideline us. And the, and, the, and the more of a threat that we become to the kingdom of this world in the way of Satan, the more anxious he is to sideline us. Now, falling and failing are not the same. Look at what he says to Peter. In verse 33 he says simon simon satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat but i've prayed for you simon that your faith may not fail now you're going to say oh wait so that prayer doesn't get answered does it because we know what comes next we've we've read that you know you know he denies christ three times i mean he failed he falls he stumbles he gets it wrong and he's so sure of himself that he's not that that's probably the weak spot where satan can attack him but in the end he doesn't fail peter fail fell and denied jesus but his faith did not fail because he got back up his faith endured through it through the trial and Jesus even tells him before this, he says, now, when that happens, (coughs) and, 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 you know, you can just, you can just sense that Jesus in his heart is thinking, Peter, you are going to be so angry with yourself, and you're going to be so ashamed of yourself, but when you stay close to me, and when your faith powers up again, and you learn to trust more in me than in your ability to be tough and wield a sword, you're going to encourage your brothers. And one of the ways that he did that, they say that the gospel of Mark was Mark taking the memoirs of Peter. And if you read the gospel of Mark, Peter fails. He falls. But if that gospel is Peter speaking through Mark, then what he's saying is he's saying, don't miss it like we did. We thought we were following Jesus, but we weren't really following Jesus. You may think that it's all about getting in the fight right now and showing up and being at the front line. He says, don't believe it. Stay faithful. 
And Peter becomes an encouragement to generations thereafter. God, you, you may think that you're disqualified because you've slipped up, because you've fallen. Maybe it's something that no one even knows about. God can use that to encourage others. The last thing that he says is, we don't respond to danger by getting more dangerous. Swords and weapons can only do too much. There, the disciples were so proud of themselves, they said, look, you know, here's two swords. May have just been knives to cut meat, to cut bread, but they said, we've got a weapon. God turns the might and the strength of empires against themselves. If we fight on their terms, we are going to lose. Even if we make alliances with the empires to fight on our behalf, it's been tried throughout history. It will not lead to the kingdom of God. You know, this is all happening on what Jewish festival? Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover, which was the undoing of the world's superpower at that time, Egypt. That God takes the slaves, the ones who are the nameless builders of the of the empire, the mud brick makers, he takes them and uses them as his plan to bring salvation into the world. And he delivers them from that great superpower whose leader was regarded as a god. He used their own might against them. And he did it with Egypt. He did it with Rome. Where's our lasting kingdom? Is our lasting kingdom going to be invested in any of the flags of this world? Certainly we're going to respect them and we're going to appreciate what they have to offer when it's godly. But ultimately, there's only one kingdom that's going to last. One kingdom that's going to endure above all other kingdoms. And you and I have got to become citizens of that kingdom now. And we don't respond to danger by being more dangerous. By using our own resources, God has everything he needs. You and I do not bring him something that he doesn't already have. It's not like he's cash poor or he doesn't have the right intelligent sources or he doesn't have your talent. What we do is we surrender our life to him because in our own hands, we tend to make a mess of it. But when we give it to him, he tends to make something wonderful and beautiful out of it. And we experience happiness, even if it's a hard path to follow. Those are five things that we ought to carry with us when we come to the Lord's Supper table, to think about these things. Because if we devote our lives to what matters most, it might be different at first, but as it becomes a habit, we find ourselves becoming more and more like our Savior. As we sing this next song, we're, we're, we're saying to God, it's a prayer, take my life and let it be consecrated to you, God. If that is your prayer today and it leads to some response, maybe you want to pray with the shepherds who are down here, maybe you've been considering what it means to be baptized into Jesus, just let us know today, and we want to respond to that. Let's stand. Let's sing together.